Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for our opportunity to study. We love you. We thank you for all that you've achieved through Christ for our salvation. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten us, transform us, and enable us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson 10 in the quarterly Isaiah, and the title is Doing the Unthinkable. And we are looking at this time at Isaiah 53. And uh, the lesson, different days, look at different verses. I thought we'd just go through Isaiah 53, much of it, verse by verse, and examine what we're learning from Isaiah 53, which is probably one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. And so we'll start with Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. It says, and speaking of, of, of the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men. Well, why was Jesus despised and rejected? Why? And what does this mean, despised and rejected? Was he rejected because there was something defective or wrong with him? Is that why he was rejected? Or or was he rejected because there was something wrong with those who rejected him? (laughs) This is an important... You guys laugh at this, but, but there's a lesson here that so many of my patients don't know. There's a lesson... How many people do you know that live in fear of rejection? Fear of what others think of them. If you find yourself the, on the receiving end of rejection, what is your response? Do you remember Jesus was rejected? And that rejection was not diagnostic of some wrong in Jesus, even though they said he was the son of Beelzebub, even though he said he was demon-possessed, even though they said he was mentally ill, even though he said he was a sinner. They accused him of all kinds of things, and they rejected him for that. Did that mean there was something wrong with him? How many people we know today get rejected, name-called, accused, and it crushes them? There's a lesson here. Sin in the heart, and we're all sinners, causes fear and selfishness and the hatred of all things righteous. Understand, sin in the heart, unremedied, unremoved, causes fear, causes selfishness, guilt, shame, and the hatred of all things righteous until it's until repentance, until heart change. Those in the darkness, they don't want to come into the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. This is why they hated Jesus. This is why sometimes people will hate us. Because our righteous lives expose their wickedness. Without even speaking. Without even speaking. Now, because we're sinners, if somebody does reject you or mistreat you, it is appropriate to take a moment and reflect inward and ask the question, asking the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, to enlighten, hey, is this rejection of me happening because I have offended, because I have wronged someone, that I have sinned against my brother? Is there something in my life I need to repent of and change? It's righteous to ask the question, but oftentimes you will find in this world the answer is no. That's not why I'm being treated this way. I'm being treated this way because of some hardness or unkindness in the other person's heart. We must not let other people's actions, now hear me very very clearly, it's a lesson from what we just learned, must not let other people's actions be the measuring stick of our peace with ourselves. 
We must not let other people's actions be the measuring stick of our peace with it. Other people's actions are a revelation of their character, not our own. Did you hear what I just said? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth evil, the evil stored up in him. Other people's actions reveal their character, not yours. So when they rejected and despised Christ, they were not revealing Christ's character. They were revealing their own. Christ's character was revealed when, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he treated them with grace and love in the face of that. Remember, Satan is the accuser. One of his powers is the power of accusation. Many people live in fear of what others think and fear of what others may say about them. And that fear allows them to be manipulated by others. They're working, vigilantly scanning. I know many of my patients, they scan their social environments, constantly trying to assess what they think others are thinking of them, and then adjust their behaviors to try to make sure that the other person likes them. You've never seen this? This is not love-driven, and it's not truth-driven. It's fear-driven. And fear is the, is the ground of the enemy. Truth will set you free. Hey, my responsibility is to govern myself in harmony with God's principles and leave other people free, like Christ did. He was despised and he was rejected because he would not conform to their expectations. Next verse in Isaiah 53. Next phrase, next sentence. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Why was Jesus sorrowful? Why was he filled with sorrow? What caused his sorrow and suffering? Certainly he felt the human fatigue, sore muscles, aches, hunger, pains after a long day, tired body. The the pain of the lash ripping his flesh and the nails piercing his flesh when he was... He felt all that. That was suffering of of a type. Is that what this is primarily speaking of here? What caused his suffering? What was the primary suffering that he felt? This is an interesting quote. I don't know if you have ever landed on it and registered the meaning, but this is out of Desire of Ages 224. It says, In the temptation in the wilderness, Satan had been defeated, and his rage was great. Now he determined to bring sorrow upon Christ by striking John. The one whom he could not entice to sin, the Jesus who he could not entice to sin, he would cause to suffer. How did he bring sorrow and suffering to Jesus? By hurting those Jesus loves. His own cousin. Yeah. Imprisoned and beheaded. Yeah. Did you think about that? Jesus, as he walked this earth and saw the suffering of people. He sorrowed. How many of you have had loved ones who have rejected Christ, gone off into destructive lifestyle patterns, and injured themselves, or have been injured, or maybe they've been victims of, they've been righteous and doing good, but they've been victims of, of some unrighteous person. Either way, somebody you love has suffered, either their own hand or the hand of somebody else. Has it brought sorrow to your heart? He was a man of sorrows. His heart suffered. That's one type of suffering. 
But here's another quote from the Tsar of Ages, page 753. During the crucifixion, and the Gethsemane in the crucifixion, the withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in the hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. You see, this this disabuses people. If you understand and, 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 and embrace this perspective, this disabuses people of the Mel Gibson view of the cross. The Mel Gibson view of the cross. You know the movie where the suffering was all physical. It was all the lashing and beating and, and tearing of the flesh. Why, why is that all physical? Because the Mel Gibson view is based on the human law model. And the human law model is imposed laws require imposed punishments. And since he took all of our sin, he had to be beaten and flogged really badly for all the sins of all human beings. And so he had to really suffer physically because that's how you punish sin. But when you understand reality and how God's design law works, you understand that Jesus experienced a severing of his eternal, intimate connection with his Father. And think of the sorrow. As I gave an example a couple of weeks ago, if you were told that you never get to speak to Vladimir Putin again in the rest of your life, how, how, how much tears would you shed for that? How, how sorrowful would you be? I think most of us who've never met him or don't know him would not shed a tear. Okay, I can live with that. But how about if you were told the person you love the most in this world, your spouse, your child, whoever you love the most in this world, do you never get to see again? How would that hit your heart? We, we is, is de- even if godly of a relationship and say a, a holy marriage that we have, can never appreciate an infinite bond that Jesus had with his Father. It's so beyond us. An infinite, infinite beings through infinite eons of time. And at the cross, it was separate for a period of time. I, I, the sorrow must have been overwhelming, and that's what this describes, to, to the point that the physical pain was hardly felt. Continuing in the next verse in Isaiah 53. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and, w- and we esteemed him not. Why? Why, why didn't humans esteem and value him? What is the value system of the world? What is the world value? And we do just look around. We value certain things. We value them highly. We value them so highly we pay them the most in our society. And we adore them and we idolize them. We even have TV shows, American Idol. Uh, who, do, who do we esteem the most? Those with power and money and beauty. These are the things the world values. But they didn't esteem him. He w- was homeless. He, he didn't even shave or get a haircut. He didn't change his clothes. He had one change of clothing. Probably smelled bad. Hmm. Didn't matter that he loved people. Didn't matter that he helped people. He didn't meet their standard. Verse 4. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Took up our infirmities. What does this mean? What's the question I frequently ask in here? What law lens do you look through? Do you look through law as human law, a system of made-up rules that require judicial oversight and infliction of punishment? Or do you look through creator law, design law, laws of health, laws of physics, how reality works? Which law lens do you look through when you answer this question? He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He who knew no sin, this is, uh, this is 1 Corinthians, he who knew no sin, or is it 2 Corinthians 5.21? It's 5.21. Is it first or second? Second. Second, second Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Notice, substitution. We believe in substitution. Jesus is our substitute. No question. People accuse us. You don't believe in substitution. That's, that's an allegation without evidence. We believe. But notice what we believe in substitution for. Notice what happens in the text. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be declared legally righteous even though we're not. It's not what the Bible says. So that we might become the righteousness of God. It was for our healing, our restoration, to recreate in us righteousness, to take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, to circumcise our heart by the Spirit, to write the law of God on our hearts and minds, to be reborn, to be recreated, to die to the old, to be reborn to the new. All the metaphors of Scripture, all of them are trying to tell us it's real, folks, real transformation, you get a new heart and right spirit. The penal legal thing, this, this, this abomination, and it's an abomination that has infected Christianity and gotten the hearts and minds of men, teach them that, in fact, it's just the opposite. That you don't get a new heart and right spirit. You get declared to be righteous even though you're not. Because it's all based on Satan's view of law rather than God's view of how reality works. Jesus take up our infirmities. Was this a legal taking up of our position on death row. We're on death row in God's government and waiting for the execution to be carried out. Jesus comes, takes our seat on death row, and God executes him in our place. Uh, thus, he took up our infer- or he took up our actual condition, our state of being. Jesus became incarnate. What do you understand that to mean? What kind of humanity did he take up. Did he take humanity like Adam had in Eden? Did he take humanity like you and I are born with exactly? This is the big trap. I don't know if you heard the theological terms prelapsarian, postlapsarian. It just simply means this prelapsarian. Does he have a humanity like Adam had in Eden, sinless and perfect? Or does he have a humanity like you and I, completely corrupt and selfish? It's neither. It's a false argument. Satan, just watch for it. You'll see it everywhere. Satan constantly set up, sets up two false systems and gets two groups to argue back and forth about them, and they're both on his side. The truth is Jesus was unique. And you think about it. If, you, if you're an evidence-based thinker who understands the Bible is a historical record of actual how reality works, you just walk through it. How did Adam come into be a being, a living being? How did it happen? God formed him out of dirt. Breathe into his breath, uh, breathe into his nostrils, the breath of life, he became a living, sinless human being. Did Jesus' humanity come in in that way? No, it didn't. Eve, how did she come into being? Taken from Adam's side and created a new, individual, sinless human being. Did Jesus' humanity come in that way? From the side of a sinless human being? No. You and I come into the world from 
a sinful mother and a sinful father. Did Jesus come into the world that way? No, he didn't. He didn't come in like Adam. He didn't come in like Eve. And he didn't come in exactly like us. He came from a sinful mother, Galatians 4, 4, born of a woman under law, the law of sin and death. But his father was the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is unique. He fully took our humanity, but he merged it with his perfect divinity. He's unique. Thus, he was able to be tempted in every way, just like we are. He felt the pull of the temptations, not just external. We've all been tempted by somebody outside ourselves. But we also have been tempted, uh, James chapter 1, nobody should say God tempts, God can't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted, we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. We're tempted by our own fallen nature. In Gethsemane, did Jesus experience powerful human emotions? Yes or no? Did they tempt him? Father, if it be possible, what? What's he asking? What's the pull for? Save others or save self? What's he, what's he, and that's the core of sin. Selfishness. Save self. He's being tempted by his emotions to avoid the cross and save himself. But every time temptation comes, temptation is not sin. He overcomes it. Not my will, thy will be done. No one can take my life. I give it freely. And so in Christ, we see achievement, accomplishment as a human being, exercising human abilities, being tempted as a human being, placing his faith and trust in his father. He faces death and exercises the power of love that casts out that fear, and he overcomes. So Jesus is unique. Continuing the next, next sentence. Yet we considered him. Here it is. So, so he took up our infirmities. He took up our sin, sick, sin, sick condition in order to heal, to overcome, carried the pain and suffering and the sorrow of what that was like. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Notice this. Isaiah prophesied that humanity would understand. We would miss the point. We'd miss the mission. We'd fail to see that Jesus came to uh, uh, take up our our sin-sick condition in order to heal it, overcome it, and restore us to oneness with God. And instead, we would see this through the lie of Satan's law lens, the legal lens. And therefore, it legally required God to afflict him and beat him and punish him and execute him. For all the sins of the world. Some will say, I took his wrath out upon him. You're all types of crazy talk about this. It's all fraudulent. It's based on the lie of believing God's law functions like human law. And once we go back to design law, we see the reality of it. Notice how Matthew applies this very text in Matthew 8, 16 and 17. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill in order that... What was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. See, bearing our griefs and infirmities and sorrows does not mean he paid a penalty. Instead, it means that he took away from us that which grieves us, sin itself. That's what pierces us. That's which damages us and destroys us and, and kills us. He took it away. And thus John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God which takes upon himself the punishment of the world. No, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. This is what he came to do, take the actual sin away. This is what pierces us and grieves us. The healing and metaphor and the healing of physical illnesses on earth that he was doing was an object lesson 
of his plan to heal the heart and mind from sin. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. What's the first question? What law lens are you looking through? What law lens? How do you explain it? What crushed him? Was it the physical piercing? They crucified him. And they said, man, he sure is living up there a long time. Way longer than the average person on the cross. He's got great physical endurance. Or they say, he can't be dead yet. No way. Nobody dies that fast. Did he die from the physical causes? No, he died of a broken heart. The weight of sin, the separation of his father, the sorrow that we just talked about. Is there any evidence in Scripture, any inspired writings that you value, that the Father used any of the Father's divine power to injure, harm, punish, or crush Jesus? Anywhere. If you have that quote, I'd love to see it. Or if we use the inspired record, what account do we have of the Father's actions towards Jesus at the cross? What did the Father do? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me, let me go, give me up? And why did the God Father do this? Is it because sin, all the sins, past, present, if you're placed on Christ the cross, and once they're placed on Christ the cross, sin is offensive to God. It, it, it really makes him sick to his stomach. He can't stand it. And now he can't, his son has become vile to him and disgusting. And oh, 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 oh I got to get away from here. Is this what was happening? Well, this is what's taught. Sin's offensive to God. He can't stand to be be there. Can't, you can't have sin in his presence. It was so offensive, something had to be done to satisfy his outrage. He was outraged. It's just offended. How could you offend my sensibilities? Like I need satisfaction. We'll come to the satisfaction piece in the Isaiah just a moment. But why did the Father abandon him? He would have died. That's correct. Was it necessary for Christ to die on the cross for our salvation? Why? Pay a penalty? Somebody had to pay it. The law was broken. Minimum penalty is death. Somebody has to pay the penalty. If he doesn't pay it, you got to pay it. So somebody had to pay it. So he had to die to pay the penalty. That's human law, folks. It's a lie. His death was necessity. We couldn't have been saved without this righteous, sinless life and death. But why? Show his character. Okay, there's, that's a piece of it. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. So, so lies needed to be destroyed. It says in Hebrews 2.14 that Christ took upon himself human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So part of the reason he had to die was to destroy the devil's power, which is the power of death. And what's the power of death? Well, John 17.3. This is life eternal, that they might... Know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. So if eternal life equals knowing God, then eternal death equals not knowing God. So Satan's power of death is the lies that he tells that we believe about God that keep us from knowing him. So part of the reason, you're exactly right, exactly, he had to reveal the truth about God to refute the lies to win us back to trust. No question about it. That was a piece of it. Is that sufficient? That was sufficient for angels in heaven. 
The unfallen angels who had questions but remained loyal, they were solidified in their loyalty. That's why Jesus said, uh, if I be lifted up, I will cast, I will, um, if, I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all unto me. The prince of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up, I will draw all unto me. The English translations say all men. Men is supplied. It's not in the Greek. It was, I will draw all unto me. This was larger than just humanity. He drew the intel. And, and, and the prince of this world is cast out. Cast out of where? Has the prince of this world since the cross been cast out of earth? Has he been cast out of all human hearts? Where was he cast out of? Heaven. Prior to Christ's crucifixion, he was still roaming around. Look at the book of Job. He's roaming around up there, still tempting people. But after the cross, his activities were restricted to earth. You can read about this in the Desire of Ages. He could no longer access angels in heaven. Why? Force shield went up, boom. Can't get off the planet. No, this is not what happened. How does reality work? The truth had been revealed so sufficiently to the intelligences in the rest of the universe that they were settled into the truth, and no more allegations or lies from Satan would they listen to. Thus, he was restricted in his work because only on earth will people listen to his lies. So if he tries to approach an angel, talk to the hand, not listen. No, nobody here is going to give you a time of day. That's, that restricted him. Reality restricted him. So, yes, truth, revealed, settled. Okay, great. But we needed more. What, do, what, problem, what problem do we have angels don't have? Sin, okay, which means what for us? Yes, hearts filled with fear and selfishness, corrupt nature, carnal nature, you could say, sinful nature. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We not only believe lies, we have a corrupt nature that tempts us. Angels in heaven only had the lies to be refuted. They didn't have a new nature to be rebuilt. We need a new nature. How many of you can build your own perfect, sinless human character? Can't do it. Well, no human can after that, except Jesus became human. For what purpose? To reveal the truth, but also to bring life and immortality to light. 2 Timothy 1.10. To bring life and immortality to light. To destroy death and bring life and immortality. That's what it says. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Oh, this is, this is very interesting. Destroy death. How do you do it? How do you destroy death? Again, it depends on your understanding. If you have imperial law, if you have human law, the reason people die for sin is because God inflicts it. If you have imperial law, if you have human law, then you will hear the whispers of the enemy say things, look, guys, sin isn't really that bad. It doesn't hurt you. Uh, if God would just leave us alone, not have a judgment one day, just leave us down here on earth to ourselves, we could live eternally in sin because sin doesn't kill. God kills you for it. That's the Satan's imperial law lie. Sin doesn't do anything to you. God just punishes you for it. And in that view, death comes from God. God's the source of death. It's a lie. God's the source of life. His laws are the protocols upon which life is built. That's reality. And so Christ came to a human humanity infected with a, a, a principle that is contrary to life. The principle of selfishness, which is contrary to love. We are dead in trespassing sin. We have a terminal condition. He came to take the condition and cure it. How did he do it? Being tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. In Hebrews 5, 9 and 10, it says that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect. Made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? 
Many people get confused. They don't understand Bible perfection because they think Bible perfection is through a human law model. And the human law model, what's, what's perfection? Perfect performance. Perfect deeds. In other words, never sinning. Sinlessness is Bible perfection in the human law model. It's a lie. Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. There was no one on the earth like him, according to Scripture. Was he sinless? No, but he was perfect. So what's Bible perfection mean? Maturity of character. So Jesus not only had to be sinless, he had to develop a perfect, mature human character. And thus he was tempted in every way just like we are. And at the same time, he lived out a righteous or sinless life. Developing a human, human sinless character. Prior to Christ, there was sinless divinity with perfect divine character. There were divine angels, Gabriel and others, who had divine angelic character. There was no divine, there was no sinless human character. So Ellen White writes in Zarvages 761, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. A free gift, the character he develops. His life stands for the life of men. We, uh, he imbues us with the heavenly attributes. We become partakers of the divine nature. This is a gift. So Christ, this is what he achieved. He revealed truth to destroy lies, to win us to trust, and as a human being, tempted in all parts like we are, all the way up to the point, why did he have to die? Because at any point along death's approach to him, if he exercises his power and stops death from taking him, who does he save? Self and selfishness wins. The only way to eliminate selfishness from the heart of his humanity was to surrender it to death in love. And thus he restored love into his humanity. It's really quite profound. And thus he becomes our savior. And the father separated because the only way he could achieve the outcome to eliminate the infection and die is if the source of life let him go. If God did not separate, he could not achieve the outcome. And the same way that Jesus stayed away from Lazarus because Lazarus would not have died if the source of life had been there. And so God was not separating to punish Jesus. God was separating because God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit are jointly operating to achieve the outcome of which Christ was the agent to make it happen. And so this was a joint effort. They were all in it together. And then Peter applies this text in 1 Peter 2.24. Notice how he applies it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. Notice the reason that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We have a new heart, be reborn, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we are healed by what he's achieved. There's nothing penal legal going on. Verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What does it mean, laid on him the iniquity of us all? What law lends? You will see in the lesson, if we jumped up, I'm not going to, I'm going to finish the whole, the whole thing of Isaiah 53, but it's in the lesson notes later that the lesson actually says at one point, 
the weight, the guilt, the punishment for the sins of the whole world, every sin by every sinner fell upon Jesus. Think that through. This is a common thing taught. Why? Why would it be necessary to believe that every sin from every sinner in all human history was placed on Jesus at the cross and punished there? Why do you have to believe that? Because the desire of ages 761, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed, and if a man should sin, he cannot be forgiven. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. It's been Satan's position from the beginning that every sin must be punished. This is Satan's argument from the beginning because it's based on what kind of law? In, imperial law, imposed, made-up rules, not design law, not reality, not, not how universe is constructed by God. And think about the laws of this courtroom here. If you break any of the laws of this municipality, if justice is to be served, what will need to, be ha- need to happen? You will need to be punished. If you go 45 in a 30 zone in Collegedale and no one catches you, and no one catches you, and in order for justice to be served, what happens? You get pulled over, you get cited, you come into court, you get fined, you're punished, inflicted externally. That's human justice. If we let people get off, the system breaks down. The rule of law is the highest form of order sinful beings can make. And it's, and it's nothing like God's kingdom. They're beastly. This is how the world operates. It's not God's system. So, we, all the sins were not placed on you. And think about that. If you're a thinking, reasoning person, well, I gave some examples a couple of weeks ago of this. Can you think of any examples that if that were true, you can immediately go, wait a second. There are some serious problems with that. Adolf Hitler and Stalin killed tens, hundreds of millions of people together, shorting their lives. All those lives ended very, very early. That means they didn't commit trillions and trillions of sins. All those lives, right? That means all those sins weren't placed on Jesus and he wasn't punished. They were helping reduce the suffering of Jesus. Truly, if all the sins were placed on him and, and, we, and we kill people during their life, they can't sin. We've taken punishment off of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That means we need more Hitlers than Stalin. We need more Hitlers to help Jesus. Yes. Do you see the ludicrousness of this? Same thing with abortion. All the babies who never live can't commit sin. All those sins can't be put on Jesus, and they can't be punished there. So we're helping reduce the suffering of Jesus. This is what you get when you do irrational silliness. It's silly for thinking people. You know, I've said this to certain theologians, and they didn't think it was funny. They were quite, they were quite offended at me. Yeah. Maybe because they wrote a book about it. So the iniquity of us all, we are all born with fear and selfishness in our hearts. And without the Holy Spirit and in our hearts, our minds go our own way. We watch out for self. We've all gone our own way. That's what it says. Turned away from the path of righteousness. God has taken this terminal me-first condition, this fear-ridden, self-centered, and put it upon Christ. And Christ took up a humanity born of a woman under law, Galatians 4.4, born of Mary. So he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. We are not, and and I've already gone through that temptation. So this is how he took up our iniquity, in order to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. Verse 10. Yet... 
It was the Lord's will. Now, prepare for this one, folks. I, I want you to, uh, before I explain it, you explain it to me. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. So what do you understand that to mean? It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. See, the Lord's doing it. Jennings, I don't know what you're talking about. We know that God punished him on the cross because justice requires punishment. God had to punish him. What law lens do you read this through? Those who say that are reading it through human law. Human law requires punishment. Is there another way that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer that had nothing to do with infliction or using divine power? Yeah, how would you explain it? He already did explain that in order for Jews to die, God had to remove himself, and that was the source of the crushing. It was God's will that we should be saved. Jesus had to do this to save us. Exactly. This is exactly, it's design law. It's how reality works. You couldn't achieve the outcome without the actions taken by the joint Godhead, working together cooperatively, each taking separate roles in the process. If he would have stopped it, either the Father, Son, or Spirit would have intervened to stop, then they would have demonstrated that they are, in fact, selfish. And they would not have had a human develop a perfect, godless, sinless character and restore God's designed law. And understand his law is not a system of rules. God's law is a living law. You cannot understand God's law written on stone. It got put on stone because it's no longer written in hearts. The law of love, you cannot understand love on stone. Love requires a living being. It was supposed to be Adam and Eve were the repository of God's law, which is a design principle of how life operates. And when it was no longer in their heart, God wrote it on stone, adapted for human condition, but it was designed to be on the heart. So the new covenant, write my law in your hearts and minds, we live again the principles of love. We don't have a list of rules we adhere to. That's imperialism. So the weight, we could say the weight of sin, the sense of guilt, the separation of his father, the, the, the pull and the tug of, of the nature, the, the temptation of his own, own human emotions, that all, that he felt the weight of all that. And that was God's will for him to do that it was the only means to fix or heal the brokenness in humanity that was caused by Adam's choice. Verse 11, yes. I'm just thinking through that cooperative effort you mentioned. Is it possible that God the Father suffered equally? As oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Ellen White actually says so. Oh, yes. Think, parents. Think what it would be like for you to watch your child agonize on that cross. Most parents who, who have love in their heart would rather be the one suffering than the one watching their child suffer. So in a certain way, father suffered even more. Yeah, so you're exactly right. Verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the result of the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. You know the satisfaction theory of atonement? There's a, there's a theory of atonement, satisfaction. Our sin offends God. He is so righteous and so holy, he can't even stand to be in its presence. It's an outrage to him. It offends his sensibilities. His person gets put off by it. It disgusts him. And, and after sin, something has to be done to, to settle him, to calm him, to, to deal with his outrage, his wrath even. 
He has to have satisfaction. And so nothing we could offer, because all, of all of our righteousness is filthy rags. We are so corrupt. There's nothing we could offer him. He needs the blood of an innocent son to be offered to him. I'm satisfied now. Think that through. We're, God, uh, you know, we've sinned. God's, uh, God's, God's kind of angry at us now. and He's, he's out. Well, taking that model. He's mad. He's at, angry. He's offended. How can we ever get back in this good grace? Oh, my. Oh, my. Theories. But let's have a meeting. Let, let's have a council. Let's have a committee. Let's figure this out. Uh, I know. When he sends his son, we'll kill his son, offer him his son's blood, and that'll make him happy with us. Yeah, that's, the, that's the parable of the vineyard that Jesus said. Yeah, this is, the, this is ludicrousness. And this is what's taught in essentially every version of Christianity. His son comes, we kill him, offer the father the blood of the innocent son. The father goes, satisfied. That's satisfaction theory. Penal substitution, that pays the debt. Now I can legally, I've got the blood, it's in the registry of heaven. Uh, I I can apply that legal payment. Now I have the freedom to pardon your sin and declare you righteous, even though you're just as wicked as the day you brought me the blood. The legal fiction. It's all corrupt, all based on human law. The life is in the blood. The blood is not offered to the Father, folks. Understand the metaphor. Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life in you. Where did Jesus say the blood had to be applied? To the Father or to you and me? Okay? And the blood and the flesh were were replaced with new symbols. They're just symbols. Bread and wine. When you take flesh, Jesus is the Word, the Word made flesh. Okay? That's what it teaches. Unless we ingest the flesh of Jesus, the Word, and he is the truth. And so lies, believe, break circle, love, and trust, the truth will set you free. Jesus is the word or the truth. Unless we ingest into our minds the word and the truth, we won't have the lies replaced and we won't be one to trust. And so just as you take in the flesh of the Passover lamb that they did, and you ingest that, it is broken down into molecules, and those molecules become building blocks into your physical body, so too, when you internalize truth, those truths become building blocks into your mind, dispelling lies and forming new ideas, new perceptions, new schemas, new belief systems. They become building blocks into your building character. And then in trust, you open your heart, and it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts, his life. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. We partake of the blood or the wine through the work of the Holy Spirit filling us. This is what the metaphors are trying to say. It's regenerational, transformational. And so, understand then why this was satisfactory. He was satisfied. If you have a child dying of leukemia, what is the only thing that would satisfy you, truly? Truly, completely satisfy you. A remedy that puts the cancer into, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It is not about legal pardon. It is about having sin in the sinner remit. Having our hearts remitted back to perfection. We can't achieve it. Christ achieved it as our substitute. As we accept what he's achieved through the revelation that he's provided and trust him, then the spirit takes what he's achieved, reproduces it enough, we get new hearts and right spirits. The old is gone, the new has come. Sin is being remitted in us. And so the Father, just as you would look 
at the the leukemia treatment and your child is now well, that satisfies you. The father looked, says, as the result of the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. He's satisfied with the result. Humans are saved. That satisfies him. Continuing on, by his knowledge or the knowledge of him, depending on your translation, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. What does this mean? Justify. What does it mean to justify? What's the first question you need to ask? Well, all ends. If you look at the imperial law lens, what does justify mean? Paying a penalty of some sort. But if you understand how reality works, justify means something completely different. If you have a, 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 a Word document and you're working on and you justify your margins, what are you doing? You're making them right. That's beautifully said. That's exactly. You're making them right. You're putting them in line. You're setting them right. Justification means rightification. Means putting it right. Okay, next question. What's wrong with your or my sinful life that needs to be set right, put right, or justified? Is it a record book in heaven? Well, the problem is those lists up there. If I could just get somebody, I know, I'll call Jesus. Jesus, can you sneak into the heavenly record room and when no one's looking, rip some pages out for me, please, or just pile a little blood there and erase some stuff that's in my record. Just kind of get that gone. So when the Father comes to Judgment Day and look at my record, there's nothing there. Would you do that for me, Lord? Now, that sounds silly as I put it that way, doesn't it? Do you understand that's what penal substitution theology teaches? Not, but, they, but they teach it much more piously than that. Yes, our sins are covered with the blood. This is what happens. Or, or when, you, when the record, it, it's taken away, it's erased. Think about this corruption. Pulling the wool over the father's eyes. Jesus is on your side to kind of trick the old man. Is that how you see Christianity and God in heaven? Well, that's what's taught in penal substitution theology. They get upset when I point this out. It's not reality, folks. History never changes. David murdered Uriah and had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. In the judgment, the devil is the accuser. He will be there. Adulterer! Murderer! Jesus, as our advocate, says, Father, would you please hand me the record books of heaven? Let's see, David, son of Jesse, David, son of Jesse. Um, oh, yes, here we are, David, son of Jesse. Um, Mr. Devil, I um, have no idea what you're talking about because uh, I have no record of anything like that happening here. I can see, though, that at a time, of, I think it was at 600 B.C. on a Thursday, um, David asked for my blood to be applied, and it was applied, and it, 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 the record's gone. So uh, there's no judicial accounting here in, uh, in heaven of any sin of David. And then you can hear an angel, Gabriel, uh, Sir, sir, um, here's my King James Bible. Could you borrow it just for a minute and read there over in, uh, over in, in, in First Chronicles? We don't allow Bibles in heaven. <laughs> Might have a record of sin. Do you see how silly this is? It's crazy talk. And that's what they teach at these Christian universities. It's not reality. And you wonder why so much of the world is being duped by our media, because nobody's taught how to think anymore. What's the reality? 
that scenario? The devil accuses David, and David and Jesus goes, oh, the facts of history that you've just described certainly happened. But they're not relevant because David has a new heart and right spirit. While those deeds occurred, those deeds were symptoms of a heart of a murderer and the heart of an adulterer. But David died to that old man, and he accepted my heart. And now he has a new heart and right spirit who is loyal, faithful, and true. And he is no longer an unrighteous person. See, what changes is not history. What changes the hearts and minds of people. That's what changes. That's what's transformed. So he justifies by setting right the hearts and minds. And so we think about Abraham. He talks about Abraham trusted God and was recognized or accounted as righteous. Hmm. Or Okay, I use the modern word. He had faith in God. That's the more primitive word. The Greek is the same, P-I-S-T-I-S, faith, trust, belief. It's all the same. But most like the word faith. He had faith. He actually has faith. And with faith, then, he was declared. If you have faith, you're declared to be righteous, even though you're not. No. What's the natural state of all human hearts, according to Scripture, that we're born with? A trusting relationship with God, or our hearts are enmity to God? We're distrusting and enmity. So when Abraham trusts God, what's that self-evident of? Again, history, reality. His heart is no longer in a state of distrust or enmity. Thus, his trust in God was a setting right of his heart. His heart was set right. He was justified. Therefore, after he trusted God or had his heart changed from distrust to trust or enmity to loyalty, after his heart was put right, God recognized that reality and said so. Abraham's heart's right. He's justified. He's put right. And all that is obscured by this legal fiction that said Abraham exercised faith in the shed blood of a lamb representing the Messiah in the future and the payment that would be made, and God recognized that that payment would one day be made by Jesus and declared Abraham to be now righteous, even though Abraham's not righteous. Legal fiction. It's not reality. Abraham was changed. He had a new heart and right spirit because of his trust. He received the righteousness of Christ as a gift. And so, that quote that I started earlier, uh, Desire of Ages 762, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man is not to give, he cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, not through a legal payment, through the forbearance of God. More than that, more than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ, and God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Notice that. Justification is all about setting hearts right with God again taking away fear and selfishness and restoring us to love and trust. That's justification. It's all healing. It's the same all through Scripture. That's design law, how reality works. Let me, because we're running out of time, jump up 
two. We'll go to Wednesday's lesson. I'll skip a little bit here. In the bottom green, uh, the guilt, the punishment of the whole world was laid on Christ. Let's see. And let's look at this, the guilt. Let's look at these different guilt, punishment, sins. Let's look at all that. Uh, different law models. If you, um, if you understand guilt to the human law model, what is guilt in the human law model? Transgression is the act. What's the guilt in the human law model? You have to be, have to be caught and convicted. It's a con- state of conviction. You're under condemnation of the law. You're guilty. It's a legal state. It's a state of legal condemnation. That's what guilty is under human law. Thus, we are on death row under legal condemnation and sentence of death. That's the legal view of it. Thus, Jesus took our guilt. He took our legal position under God's legal condemnation to pay the legal price. That's the view in the legal model. Under the design law model, though, guilt is what you are going for. It is the mental anguish and suffering that sin causes the heart and mind of the sinner, the internal sense of condemnation, the fear that drives people to deny, to blame, to rationalize, to justify, to separate themselves from God. They ran and hid because they were afraid, because they were guilty. Thus, the guilt of sin Jesus experienced in that awful guilt separation that was placed upon him when his father pulled back, that agonizing Gethsemane experience in the cross. It was a reality of experience, not a legal position. Punishment. Under the imposed law model, punishment is the appropriate amount of pain and suffering that is inflicted upon you by the ruling authority. That's the punishment. And thus, many of you, maybe not you, many Christians I know are looking forward to the thousand years they get to sit on committee and look at the record books of the wicked and decide how long each must suffer in the fire before God kills them. You've heard this uh, theory? Yeah, so you get to look at the sins, and and I guess the people in Sodom get a few seconds off um, for there because they've already paid a little bit. They're suffering. Uh, you see the silliness of all this. It's silly. silly. I, I, would, I would ask on that committee, hey, what about the Hiroshima and Nagasaki? They get time off too? They, they, they burned in the fire. Oh, yeah, but that wasn't God's fire. It was human fire, so it didn't count. Under design law, punishment is the punishment that sin itself brings in the separation from God, the guilt, the shame, the agonizing of heart and mind. Uh, here's a quote from First Selected Messages 235. Now, this is an interesting quote. I've read it before. But this quote was uh, written after Ellen White was uh, disavowed. Okay. Uh, disavowed. Uh, you know, after 1888, she sided with what we teach. We teach righteousness by faith. Second Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We become righteous. That's the righteousness by faith message. You are really transformed in heart to have new righteous motives. You become righteous. That's the righteousness by faith message. That's the message that Ellen White embraced and supported. Leadership rejected it and went with the penal lie that you're declared to be righteous even though you're not. You remain unrighteous, but God legally causes a fiction in heaven to declare a legal state that you don't possess. And that's what the church embraced and began to teach. She did not support that. She opposed that. She supported what we teach. And so what did the church do? They disavowed her and shipped her to Australia. And she wrote to Uriah Smith, who was the editor of the Signs of the Times at the time that this was received, This, what I'm about to read to you. 
he did not know how to deal with it because it did not fit. He was one of the imperial law view holders, the punishing God holder. And so he put it in the files of the signs where it was lost until the 1950s. And it was discovered in the 1950s, and it was published in the first selected messages, page 235. And here's what she wrote. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Design law. How reality works. God never uses his power from our last class. We just talked about it. Compelling powers found only under Satan's government. God never uses this. That's the systems of the world. He doesn't have to any more than you would have to use a belt to beat your child who jumped off a cliff after you instructed them not to. And then sins. What are sins under the imposed law model for this design law model? Under the imposed law model, sins are deeds, bad acts, and they're recorded in books, and the acts must be tracked and recorded and punished. Under design law, sins are the symptoms of a condition of being. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you hate in your heart. Jesus letting us know the bad actions are simply the outgrowth of heart condition. They're the symptoms. They're not the problem in themselves. Yes, they cause problems. They are a problem, but they're not the problem. They're the symptom of the problem. That's why they have to be reborn, have to have the law written on the heart, have to have uh, circumstances of the heart. We have to be healed and changed. Under the imposed law, it is fraudulently taught that all bad deeds were placed on Christ and punished by God in Christ, and you can claim a legal payment. Under design law, we understand that the sin condition, the terminal state of being, was taken upon Christ, and he eradicated the condition and rose on the third day in a new humanity that he perfected. And thus he is the vine which we're attached to, the second head of humanity, the second Adam. And all who uh, recognize him as Savior, the Spirit takes what he's achieved, reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ and for you, Father, and for the Spirit, for the Godhead working jointly together to achieve the outcome necessary for our salvation. We pray that your spirit of truth and love be poured out, transform our hearts, enable us to be more effective in breaking free from the system of the world and to be a light in this world at this time because we can see the final movements are really happening and you're going to be coming soon and just prepare us to be ready to meet you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.